0: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This Day in History Class is a
1: production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that flips through the pages of history to deliver old news in a new way. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're talking about the life and death of one of the most celebrated and most controversial children's authors of the 20th century. The day was May 10th, 1999. Beloved children's author Shel Silverstein died of a heart attack at his home in Key West, Florida. He was 67 years old and was survived by his son Matthew. Most people remember Shel Silverstein for his tongue-twisting poetry, whimsical, bittersweet stories, and for the charming line drawings that accompanied them, all of which he drew himself. Many of Shel's children's books, including The Giving Tree, A Light in the Attic, and Falling Up, have become staples of millions of personal libraries, those of both kids and adults because as anyone who's read his work knows, Shel Silverstein was not your typical children's author. His poetry was a unique mix of joyful absurdism, gross-out humor, macabre twists, and sincere reflections. The result were musical verses that, while simple in form, were deeply satisfying to hear, read, and to think about. Since he is best known for his children's work, longtime readers may be surprised to learn that Shell actually had a long and varied career outside the genre. He was a longtime cartoonist for Playboy magazine, the author of nine stage plays for adults, and even a semi successful folk singer during the 1960s. But there are some unifying threads between all his various works. Those include his dark, gleeful sense of humor, his knack for ridiculing figures of authority, and his promotion of personal empowerment. Sheldon Allen Silverstein was born into a Jewish middle-class family in Chicago, Illinois, on September 25, 1930. Details of his early life are largely unknown beyond that. As an adult, Silverstein valued his privacy and never spoke at length about his personal life or his childhood. One thing we do know for sure about the young Shell Silverstein is that he never intended to be a writer. His original aspiration was to be a baseball player, a ladies' man, or preferably both. In a rare 1975 interview with Publishers Weekly, Silverstein recounted the death of that dream and how it set him on the path to becoming an author and illustrator. When I was a kid, he said, 12 to 14, around there, I would much rather have been a good baseball player or a hit with the girls, but I couldn't play ball. I couldn't dance. Luckily, the girls didn't want me. Not much I could do about that, so I started to draw and to write. By the time I got to where I was attracting girls, I was already into work, and it was more important to me. Silverstein may not have had the skills to be a pro athlete, but he did spend five years working at the Cubs and White Sox stadiums in Chicago. True, he was a concessions vendor paying his way through college, but the job still gave him some valuable life lessons just the same. For example, when a reporter later asked the author what he had learned about people from his time as a hot dog vendor, Silverstein replied, quote, I learned they like mustard, and they like a hot bun. Did you know that? If you steam the bun first, they'll really like it. Shell sold a lot of hot dogs during his college years, but he never did get his degree. First, he attended the University of Illinois, but was quickly kicked out due to his bad grades. Next, he tried the Art Institute of Chicago, but wound up dropping out after about a year. Lastly, he enrolled at Chicago's Roosevelt University, where he studied English for a full three years. His time at the school proved formative, as it was there that Shell first started writing and cartooning for the student paper. His flair for flaunting authority and social norms was there even in his earliest work. For instance, the first cartoon he ever published showed a naked student smoking a cigarette in front of an angry professor. The caption read, What do you mean no smoking? I thought this was a liberal school. Before he had a chance to finish his studies at Roosevelt, Shell was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1953 and sent to fight in the Korean War. The grim experience likely colored his often dark view of the world, but unexpectedly, it also gave him the chance to earn his first art-related paycheck. During his tour of duty, Shell worked as a cartoonist for the Pacific edition of the U.S. military's newspaper, Stars and Stripes. But don't think he toned down his style for Uncle Sam. On the contrary, one of his cartoons almost got him court-martialed. Apparently, it implied that officers were dressing their families in stolen uniforms, and the higher-ups didn't find it very funny. In the end, Shell narrowly avoided the court-martial by agreeing that his future strips would only lampoon civilians and animals, not his fellow soldiers. After being discharged from the armed forces in 1955, Silverstein's publishing career really began to take shape. He returned to Chicago and started working as a freelance cartoonist. It went smoothly for a while, with him landing gigs at magazines such as Sports Illustrated, This Week, and Look. The only downside was Shell didn't get much exposure from those jobs, and none of them were steady work. However, in 1957, Shell caught his big break when he scored the job of resident cartoonist for Playboy. The new adults only magazine had premiered just two years earlier, allowing him to get in on the ground floor of the operation. It wasn't just some short lived stint either. Shell Silverstein's cartoons appeared in every issue of Playboy from 1957 all the way through the mid-1970s. However, that wasn't the only work of his that Playboy published. In 1961, the adult magazine published an excerpt from a mock children's book that he'd been working on, called Uncle Shelby's ABZ Book, a primer for tender young minds. Soon after the abridged version appeared in Playboy, Shell actually published it separately as his very first book. As you probably guessed, it wasn't really a kid's book. It was meant as a satirical spin on children's alphabet books, the kind where each page gives you a letter, an illustration, and a handy mnemonic to help kids learn each letter and how it's used. Of course, teaching the alphabet wasn't quite the goal in Uncle Shelby's case. Instead, his book used associations that targeted the insecurities and gullibility of children, playfully spurring them on into all kinds of mischief. For example, the entry for E encouraged kids to hurl eggs at the ceiling in order to feed the magic genie, Ernie, who lived there. Another much darker entry advised kids to pretend to drink lye the next time they were craving a piece of candy, because after the doctor pumps their stomach, they'd be given, quote, a nice red lollipop. Black humor aside, the book was all in good fun, and clearly was never meant for kids in the slightest. However, it seems that at least a few parents bought their kids a copy by mistake, because from 1985 onward, the print edition of Uncle Shelby's ABZ book has included a stamp right on the front cover that says, A Primer for Adults Only. What's interesting is how well the tongue-in-cheek book reflected the author's view of children's literature. It's no secret that he disliked the way other authors condescended to their young audience, Shell sometimes spoke out about society's tendency to tone down the scarier elements of classic fairy tales in order to make the stories fluffier and more kid-friendly. His distaste for that kind of overbearing self-censorship clearly informed his ABC book, but ultimately he realized that the best way to push against the stifling status quo of children's books was to write one himself. According to Shell, it was a friend and fellow illustrator named Tommy Ungerer who convinced him to give it a try and by convinced i really mean forced because the author later said that ungerer quote practically dragged me kicking and screaming into editor ursula nordstrom's office and nordstrom convinced me that tommy was right i could do children's books with that validation shell silverstein made the bold move to stick with the uncle shelby persona he had created for his playboy work He called his new book Uncle Shelby's Story of Lafcadio, The Lion Who Shot Back. It was an appropriately twisted tale about a marshmallow-loving lion who becomes a famous marksman and has a bit of an identity crisis in the process. You know, standard kid stuff. Lafcadio is one of Shel Silverstein's lesser-known works, but he quickly followed it up with perhaps his most famous, The Giving Tree. He wrote it in 1960 one year after his first book, and then moved right along to a third title, called A Giraffe and a Half. But while Shell's story of a generous apple tree would eventually become one of his defining works, at the time it was written, no publisher would touch it. If you're familiar with the story, you likely know why that's the case. The Giving Tree is not a very happy story. In fact, it's downright sad in some places, and if it has a moral lesson to impart, it's a pretty ambiguous one. That sense of uncertainty was in keeping with the author's mission to be a new, more honest kind of children's author, one who didn't talk down to child readers or sugarcoat the world for them. Instead, Shell wanted to bridge the gap between adult and children's writing. But from the publisher's perspective, The Giving Tree was stuck somewhere in the middle of that bridge. For example, one editor of Simon and Schuster rejected the book, saying, "Quote it's not a kid's book. Too sad. And it isn't for adults either. Too simple. Another editor was even more direct in his response, which simply said, That tree is sick. Neurotic. It took some time, but Collins eventually came around, publishing The Giving Tree in 1964. The author definitely got the last laugh on that one. Fast forward to today, and the book has become one of the all-time children's classics. Not only has it sold over 10 million copies, it's also been translated into no less than 30 different languages, which isn't too shabby for a story about a sick neurotic apple tree. Not wanting to be pigeonholed by the success of The Giving Tree, Shel Silverstein continued as a traveling reporter and cartoonist for Playboy magazine, in addition to writing and drawing many more successful children's books. He also tried out new mediums as well, including that of folk music. Between 1959 and the mid-1970s, Shell actually enjoyed a pretty successful music career, though not so much as a singer. His voice was deemed too raspy and jarring for most people's taste, though he still released about a dozen albums of his own. His true talent, however, was songwriting. He went on to write more than 800 songs by the end of his life, many of which were recorded and performed by some of the top artists of his day. Everyone from Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson to Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash. In fact, Shel Silverstein even won a Grammy for a song he wrote for Cash, 1969's A Boy Named Sue. If you've never heard it, the song tells the story of a boy who was saddled with the name Sue by his absentee father. After being picked on all his life for having a quote unquote girl's name, he swears revenge and eventually tracks down his wayward dad. At that point, the boy's father reveals that he only named his son Sue because he wanted to make him tough, knowing that he'd be forced to stand up for himself whenever people made fun of him. For whatever reason, Sue accepts the explanation and father and son are reconciled. Take a listen. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to ma and me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. It seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. You might not expect such dark subject matter to come from the mind of a celebrated children's author, but that kind of black humor is par for the course in Shel Silverstein's poetry. One of my favorite examples is the poem Dreadful from Where the Sidewalk Ends. Shell gave a much better reading than I could, so here he is reciting the poem's final verse. Someone ate
0: the baby. What a frightful thing to eat. Someone ate the baby, though she wasn't very sweet. It it was a heartless thing to do. The, The policemen haven't got a clue. They simply can't imagine who would go and eat the baby.
1: Many of Shell's poems reflect a mischievous, even ghoulish sense of humor. Some parents find it inappropriate, but kids can't seem to get enough of it. In fact, I think that's a big part of the appeal for young readers, the hints of menace and sadness that underline so much of Shell's writing. Sure, the silliness and cleverness of his rhymes also has a lot to do with it, as does the musicality of his poems. They're just plain fun, both to read and to hear. But Silverstein's edge, or dark side, is the thing that really separates his verses from those of someone like Dr. Seuss, to whom he was often compared. Another quick poem that goes a long way toward explaining the Shell Silverstein difference is The Land of Happy. It goes like this. Have you been to the land of happy, where everyone's happy all day? Where they joke and they sing of the happiest things, and everything's jolly and gay? There's no one unhappy and happy. There's laughter and smiles galore. I have been to the land of happy. What a bore. The reason that kind of material is appealing to children is because on some level, they recognize and appreciate the honesty of it. They know that life isn't always safe and happy because even at an early age, kids sometimes don't feel that way themselves. But unlike other authors, Shel Silverstein didn't pull any punches. In fact, he once went on record with the New York Times about just how much he disliked happy endings and magical solutions in children's stories. He felt those easy answers were a cop out and that they created a sense of alienation in the reader. He went on to explain further, saying, quote, The child asks why I don't have this happiness thing you're telling me about and comes to think that when his joy stops, that he has failed, that it won't come back. Shell Silverstein sought to avoid that outcome in his own work. He wanted to train kids not only to recognize that some stories have sad endings, but to accept that and to still enjoy the story regardless. It all goes back to that revolutionary idea of his to be honest with children. A parent's gut reaction is to try and spare their kids the pain of sad, unhappy endings whenever possible, but in practice, that just leaves him with an incomplete worldview, which is far worse in the long run than a few tears at story time. That said, it's important to note that Shel Silverstein was hardly a doom and gloom author. In addition to his more lighthearted verses, he also penned some of the most inspirational children's poems to ever grace a nursery. There are almost too many to choose from, but to close out the show today, I want to leave you with one of my personal favorites. It's called Listen to the Mustn'ts, and like many of the best Shel Silverstein poems, it offers a pertinent lesson for readers of any age. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything can be. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully, you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCShow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to pass them along by writing to thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)